0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick.
1: And it's Saturday. Time for a Vault episode. This one originally published on April 9th, 2020. And it's the second part of our Bone Palace series. So we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two
1: of our episodes, The Bone Palace, where uh, the humans are the bone lords, the bones are their houses, and we all build with bones.
0: That's right. Uh, Last episode, we spoke uh, quite a bit about uh, the use of mammoth bones uh, by early peoples and the harsh uh, reality of the Ice Age.
1: Yeah, that's right. We we talked about the uh, the bone circles of the Russian plain from the uh, from the last glacial maximum, where stone age hunter gatherers would take mammoth bones from uh, either scavenged or or from mammoths that they had killed in hunting, and they would build these strange circular walls out of them. Uh, and it's not exactly known what all of these structures were for. We talked about a recently discovered one uh, that that yielded some especially intriguing. Results we talked about you know, what the function of these buildings could have been was it a dwelling was it a storehouse for food did it have some kind of symbolic or religious significance uh, and today we wanted to continue on that theme we wanted to to build with bones
0: that's right so it's easy of course to just wallow in the the necromantic gothic and death metal glory of imagined palaces built out of bone and and. Certainly, we we enjoy doing that as well. Uh, palaces of bone, thrones of bone, bone forged weapons that incur one d six necrotic damage on a critical hit—that sort of thing. Orcus's name be praised. But uh, to use <laughs> or the Lord of Bones, old Rattle Shirt from Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, we'll come back to Rattle Shirt in a bit. But uh, yeah, to use bones as tools and uh, and raw materials. I mean, ultimately, it's just good sense. So. First, let's consider why. So for starters, to state the obvious, bones do decay. They just decay at a much slower rate than soft tissue. It might Mm -hmm. take a decade in, say, a rainforest environment or thousands of years in a dry environment. But decomposition still eventually occurs uh, because we have to remember that fossils are, of course, no longer proper bones, uh, but they have undergone mineralization.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of methods by which fossils are formed. But when you're looking at like dinosaur fossils, those are not the bones of the dinosaurs. They are ways that other minerals have uh, have taken the shape of the original bones.
0: Right. But given our short lives, it's easy to sort of fall into the loose idea that bones last and flesh does not. And uh, any way you shake it for us vertebrates, our bones do tend to outlive us. The flesh (laughs) rots away, but the bones remain. And then what are you going to do with them? Now, obviously there's a great deal of room here for human complexity. We reflesh the bones with memory, magical thinking and symbolism. The skull becomes a species wide symbol for impermanence and the inexorable pull of the grave. But in Congress with this for humans and separate entirely from it, uh, for many organisms, bones are simply durable materials of varying and novel size that can uh, lend themselves very well to various uses. And, uh, I thought we might begin uh, by just considering just a few quick examples from the animal world. All right, let's do it. So uh, our uh, necromancers, our fictional necromancers from the top of the first episode, they love a good bone pile. Any necromancer (laughs) is going to love a good bone pile. And while other animals display complex emotions around death as well, burial of the dead is generally the domain of humans and Neanderthals. But there are other ways to amass a collection of bones, and that is via predation. So think of uh, the the killer rabbit in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right?
1: (laughs) Right, yeah. Look at the bones. Oh, yeah, Tim the Enchanter,
0: the bones. Uh, Or does somebody say bones schmoans, I think? (laughs) Do they? I I don't remember that part, Uh, but yeah. (laughs) Uh, Certainly, this is a deadly killer organism, and as such, uh, its place is just littered with with their remains.
1: Yeah, uh, this is uh, the way in which predators are often—predators— scavengers can become what's known in the fossil record as an accumulating agent <laughs> uh, that, that sort of gathers stuff together into a single site
0: right and then this accumulation is often referred to as a midden so uh, i want to return us to a place that we've gone to many times in the podcast and that is the world of the octopus oh, yes. the octopus midden is a great example of this consisting of the remains of various creatures that the octopus has preyed upon and so this includes generally it's you We're talking about shells, uh, but also it can include bones. Now, a midden like this need only be the accumulated bones of one's prey, but it can be more. Uh, The Sydney octopus, for example, uh, octopus uh, tetricus, according to a 2014 paper from David Shell and Peter Godfrey Smith. Uh, Peter Godfrey Smith is the author uh, as well of Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins of Consciousness. They point out that uh, this particular octopus may be engaging in a form of ecosystem engineering via their middens. Mm. Basically, they occur in large numbers uh, on a shell bed of their prey, a shell bed that has, uh, become, ends up becoming home to a community of invertebrate grazers and scavengers, while also creating additional shelter possibilities for the octopods themselves. However, the downside seems to be that the increased fish population can then bring in sharks and make it a bit busier and more dangerous than it would normally be for these octopuses. So uh, it, it's an interesting example, like it kind of getting into this area of perhaps like accidental tinkering with the environment, accidental ecosystem engineering that becomes then becomes part of this uh, this creature's uh, habit, part of its life cycle. But then there's an unbalancing that occurs as well.
1: Hmm. So this makes me think. So if the octopus is um, and let me know if I'm understanding this wrong is the idea maybe that the octopus is using uh, instinctually using this pile of shells from its Prey to attract other animals to the site, which can then themselves become
0: prey. Yeah, I believe so. Though again, it, it comes with certain complications, right? Maybe also attracting predators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the octopus here that we're talking about is uh, is is typically solitary, but the site they observed here was just one of a couple of examples that scientists have have come across of uh, where we've seen octopods living in high density populations with complex social behaviors. Trash makes friends. Yeah. But, you know, the the impact of the middens here, I think, drives home how the use of bone or shell material can sort of emerge out of a creature's lifestyle, you know, like by eating a lot of creatures and then leaving their bones, you begin to create artificial environments that are composed of bones. And that opens and and that changes the ecosystem, at least in pockets. Now, these are, of course, uh, extant octopods. But what about extinct octopods? Well, there's a lot we don't know about extinct octopods because, you know, we're talking about creatures composed uh, uh, you know, of mostly soft tissue and they're, they are a rarity in the fossil record. Right. But there's, there's one potential example, certainly a controversial hypothesis that uh, I've brought up on the show before and I, I can't help but bring it up again here. It's uh, uh, by paleontologist Mark McMinneman. And uh, he and his co-authors proposed in 2011 that a peculiar arrangement of ichthyosaur bones from the Triassic period were arranged in a linear pattern by a presumed giant octopus that was playing with its food, perhaps even creating some manner of, and this is where it gets really kind of trippy and more controversial, the idea that perhaps this creature was not only arranging the bones of its prey in a novel pattern, but was engaging in some sort of uh, a self-portrait Okay so I love this idea but it is
1: we should definitely acknowledge like at least two layers of pure speculation I mean first right. of it all it is
0: not not accepted by the scientific community in any broad <laughs> right. way at all
1: So the first layer of speculation is just the idea that the octopus was arranging the the bones like this, which that doesn't seem implausible to me, but still it's speculative. We don't know that's what happened. The second level is the intention behind the arrangement, the idea that the octopus was creating a portrait of its own tentacle, right? Right or not tentacle yeah. arm sorry
0: yeah so you know there's a, there's no way to, for us to know that it's, it's pure speculation i mean and, and again even the the idea of this being an actual species it's just we have a presumed he, he, the researchers are presuming that there is an octopus here that did this because there is again no yeah. no fossil evidence of its of its of the soft tissue that would be associated with this creature that is sometimes informally referred to as a kraken a triassic kraken
1: mm. now on the other hand i would not say at all that it would be implausible for an octopus to mess around with the bones of its prey animals and put them in strange arrangements because octopuses, absolutely modern octopuses play. They play with objects all yeah. the time. They they manipulate objects in ways that have no obvious uh, practical advantage. You know, you know, they're not just like using objects as tools or something. They apparently engage in purely recreational object manipulation.
0: Right. And then one can easily imagine that you have, this, you have this play that's occurring with the bones. You have this uh, you know, steady manipulation of the bones. And it's the thing that could, in theory, lead to more complex uses of bones later on, the use of bones as tools. Now, I don't think we see anything occurring in nature with octopods with bones like this, but we do have examples of, of octopods seeming to engage in tool use, say, with, uh, with coconuts or shells, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, using them basically as like a shield for their bodies.
0: Yeah. Now, other animals certainly work with bones and shells as well. Bones factor into the nesting behaviors of certain birds and pack rats. Uh, Bower birds have been known to to use bones in the creation of their mating bowers. But when you think of bones as tools or bones as materials, you can't help but think of hominids and and the tool use of early humans in particular, Uh, perhaps in part due to that stunning sequence uh, that we've all seen from 2001, A Space Odyssey, right? in which a human ancestor discovers uh, that the bone of a taper might be used as a weapon, not stonework, but bone work. <laughs> now, I love this scene. We've talked about it on the show before. Uh, but this scene is actually a reference to the 1949 uh, Osteodontochoratic Culture Hypothesis or ODK Hypothesis. By Professor Raymond Dart, the man who also identified the Tong child fossil in 1924. Um, uh, what does that mean? The ODK hypothesis is basically bone tooth horn culture, caratic culture. And the idea here is that Australopithecus africanus would have engaged in a carnivorous and sometimes cannibalistic lifestyle augmented by bone and horn tools that they use to hunt other animals and each other. DART based this on skeletal part representation patterns at fossil sites, presenting evidence that they were possibly using bones as tools and weapons. Essentially, it's a model for the transition from ape to human via bone-assisted predation, depending on tools made from the bones of their own kills and or the kills of other predators that they have scavenged. Now, this hypothesis has met with a generally skeptical audience, and and it had several notable detractors. Now, it is generally considered that ODK culture did not exist as Dart envisioned it, and that the bones he observed were simply due to the natural breakup of skeletons, predator preferences, and environmental damage to skeletal remains. The criticism uh, of the hyena is is often brought up as a possible scavenger responsible for the bone middens that Dart interpreted uh, as an example of this. ODK uh, culture.
1: All right, so Dart's picture of this extinct human relative making this tool use transition through the use of bones for wide scale uh, or large scale predation—that's probably not accurate.
0: But that doesn't mean that humans never used bones as tools. Right? Yeah, and I want to drive home that ODK culture hypothesis was not—it was this was not like a crazy (laughs) hypothesis, and it's you know it's it was very very sensible. Uh, But yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's really. held up over time. Uh, but still, at the same time, the use of bone tools uh, is an important part of of human tool use. There's evidence of early humans using bone tools 1.5 million years ago in what is now South Africa. And these would have been used, uh, uh, we believe, to dig in termite mounds. Mm. Uh, I included a photo here for you to look at them, Joe. They, they, they're the kind of thing where, uh, you know, if you didn't know what you were looking at, you might not get that these were tools, but uh, but these were specialized tools. I mean, this is
1: a, a huge problem in archaeology, actually. I mean, by the time we as just lay consumers of artifacts come to these artifacts, they've already been interpreted as tools. But when you're just like looking at sediments in the ground and fragments of things, it's often hard to tell what is a tool and what is not.
0: Yeah. Uh, Another example I came across bone knives from North Africa dating back 90,000 years connected with Middle Stone Age uh, Terrian culture. And these would have been made from rib bones. Wait, rib bones of what? Of humans or of something else? Uh, I believe animal, but I'm not sure they, they really were able to figure out exactly what sort of animal. Now, according to a 2015 study from the University of Montreal, Neanderthals of the Middle Paleolithic might have used, uh, made use of multi-purpose bone tools. Uh, These were found at Grotte du Bison or Grotte du Besson (laughs) uh, at uh, Arce-sur-Cure in Burgundy, France, and they would have been used alongside stone tools. So, uh, you know, it's it's not this idea of like bone or stone, but like bone and stone. And I think that makes sense, especially based in the uh, uh, the example that we, uh, we we focused on for the first episode in this uh, pair of episodes about bone technology.
1: Yeah, now I can think about some ways in which stone, I think, would be superior to bone in, for certain types of tool uses. And, and one of the things is that uh, it seems there are certain types of stones that flake away in a kind of shearing pattern which, uh, along with the technique of napping, which is where you strike stones together to try to shear off part of a, a target stone to make a sharp edge on it, that that works with stones, but it doesn't really work with bones, at least as far as I can imagine. But that doesn't mean bones would be useless. It would just mean that you couldn't use them really to create a, a knife edge as effectively as you can with napping of certain types of rock. Yeah, Though I could be wrong about that. Does, it, does that seem right to you?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, again, this would have been a, a multi-purpose uh, bone tool that the Neanderthals would have used here. Uh, so the researchers point out that, first of all, naturally, the prime purpose of hunting an animal was to obtain meat and also hide but the bones were very useful as well. Uh, so, for example, one of the bone tools found here, the, the pivotal multi-tool that they're talking about here, uh, was made from the left femur of an adult reindeer. And it was seemingly used for uh, a few different purposes. First of all, a carved sharpening of cutting edges of stone tools. So you would have used bone tools to help refine and make your stone tools. That makes sense. Uh, you, this would have also been probably used as a scraper and, quote, evidence of meat but and bone fracturing to extract marrow are evident on the tool. So uh, yeah, this would have been a very useful device. And again, I included a picture for you to see, Joe. And again, it's one of these things where you know, you know if, you, if you're not, if you didn't know what you're looking at. If you were not, uh, you know, paleontologist, uh, you m- you might not get that what you're looking at is a multi-tool.
1: i was staring at it here for the longest time, trying to figure out what it looks like. I realized if you turn it sideways, it looks like a, an iguana head.
0: Oh, it kind does of, kind of look. Yeah. It looks like a horn or an ear on it. Yeah. But that uh, that spike edge there. Yeah. Now, another interesting thing about this particular study is that prehistoric experts were previously reluctant to attribute bonework tools to Neanderthals. But such finds uh, as this from the, the very late 1990s and then into the 21st century changed that. Uh, I also want to point out that the Eureka Alert release on this particular study bears the amusing title, quote, Yabba Dabba Doe stone age man <laughs> wasn't necessarily more advanced than the neanderthals
1: oh my god 10 points that's so good wait wait wait! should they have gone with the abba, abba don't because he was
0: not necessarily more advanced i, I don't know if that quite makes sense uh I, that one was probably on the table i'm guessing i'm just guessing and then someone's like oh man what if we work homer into this as well fred flintstone and homer in one single uh <laughs> science press release title this is gonna be great
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to discuss more about bone tools and bone technology.
0: All right, we're back. So bone technology stands alongside stone technology as a a key marker of technological and cognitive development, even if we're not putting all of our eggs in the ODK basket. So you won't really find it popping up in extant non-human animals. But how about uh, how about this? You mentioned uh, old rattle shirt earlier. Um, you, you mentioned bone armor. Yeah. And that idea brings to mind not only old rattle shirt, but it makes me think of the Kurgan from Highlander. Oh, you yes. remember that bone armor that he wears or it's like bone augmented armor.
1: Don't uh, do the uh, necromongers in, in in Chronicles of Riddick wear bone armor.
0: I don't remember. I mean, they certainly have some some dark, gloomy, you know, necromantic uh aspects to their armor i don't remember if they actually had any real bone but but certainly they would they would have appreciated those who wore bone oh, okay. without a doubt uh, another example that's really burned into my mind is uh the, the character general cal from uh willow you you saw willow
1: Yes, right? yes 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 it's been a long time but yeah
0: He was the sub villain in that particular uh, movie. And of course, he was played by Pat Roach, uh, everyone's favorite uh, former uh, pro wrestler, British heavy man. Uh, You know, he's always he was always uh, fighting. He's he's, what he's he's been killed by Indiana Jones. He's been killed by Conan the Barbarian, all the greats. In fact, he was. He played the sorcerer in Conan the Destroyer, uh, if oh, you remember really? that sequence.
1: Wait a minute. Did the sorcerer in Conan the Destroyer also have bone armor and get like a sword thrown through his head or something?
0: Um. It was the scene with the mirrors. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah really a, a fantastic sequence. Uh, I, I really need to, I can't believe I'm saying this. I really need to watch Conan the Destroyer again. <laughs> oh man, uh, Because it does have some great uh, scenes there.
1: Uh, it has a reputation for being quite bad, but I, I, we should revisit it anyway.
0: It, it had a tough act to follow uh, for sure, but it, it has some some pretty wonderful magic in it, as I recall. Certainly really more overt, you know, fantasy magic than what you find in the the first film.
1: Uh-huh. Well, anyway, this is making me wonder, uh,
0: okay, bone armor, real thing? Did anybody ever actually try
1: to wear armor made out of bones?
0: <laughs> well, you know, obviously there are some problems with the idea. I mean, it would, it would be ideal if there was a slightly larger uh, bipedal creature th- that had bones and bone plates that were just already perfectly made for someone to wear his armor. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I'm sure we would hunt it to extinction uh, in no time. But uh, I don't know. I wonder if that's been uh, that idea has been explored in fantasy. See. That's where all the squatches went <laughs> until they were hunted yeah. to extinction for their bones. Oh, yes. The squatch skull makes such a great uh, helm. Well, in reality, uh, you know, I, you know, there are probably some examples you can come to where people are use, utilizing bone ornamentation. But in terms of using bone as like the primary material in construction, I did run across a really cool example. Uh, uh, this is from um, a 3,900-year-old suit of bone armor that was unearthed in Omsk, Siberia in 2014. And uh, in this example, and I, I encourage anyone to look up uh, an example of this, you'll find a picture if you just look for bone armor Omsk, that's O-M-S-K. Uh, in this example, what we have is basically a shirt of plate mail, but with each individual plate carved from animal bone. And uh, uh, you know, it reminds me, too, of, the, sort of j- the ceremonial jade armor that you see used in uh, Chinese culture, uh, where no Nobody's wearing like just like the big obvious bones of a creature, but you have all of these little plates of bone that are then stitched into this this garment that is worn by the the, the warrior. And this would have been worn, the, the researchers point out, by a very specialized warrior, a hero, if you will. A prince of the universe, if you will.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: Wait, do, do we know
1: exactly what the, the pros and cons of this type of armor would have been if it involved bone? Like are there... Like how does that compare to standard materials do do we know anything about that
0: uh, about the its durability yeah I mean I think this is something we we need to explore in a a future like full on uh, look at armor, which is something we've been talking about wanting to do for a while. Uh, But I mean, basically, we do see so many different approaches to armor in different cultures, depending on available resources. You know, we've discussed in the past uh, the Inca and how Inca armor depended uh, so uh, heavily on fiber you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and could, apparently it was apparently quite effective in their engagements. Uh, certainly, you get into cultures that have more access to uh, to various um, metalworking uh, strategies. You, know, you see the the metal armor. Uh, this seems to to make sense though, because you would have a durable uh, material that uh, would would augment whatever you know, kind of like hide based armor you're 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 creating. Uh, but it's going to be it's going to be lighter than using little bits of stone. It's going to be lighter than weighing yourself down with this uh, with an enormous stone garment, uh, so I, I think that's it's basically is just going to come down to material availability.
1: Now you said this was unearthed in Omsk uh, in Siberia. I wonder would the people living in this region have had access to many other types of resources to make armor out of, or would would It'd be closer to like the, uh, the, the bone house in, uh, in, in the ice age situation where basically this is what you got.
0: Yeah. I, I, like I say, I feel like resource availability is uh, is one of the key aspects of this. And, um, uh, this would have been, um, this would have been bronze age, um, technology, <laughs> uh, basically, uh, the, the, article I was reading about this from the Siberian times titled, uh, warriors, uh, Thirty nine hundred year old suit of of bone armor unearthed in Omsk uh, from uh, September six uh, two thousand fourteen. Uh, they mentioned that. Um Uh, that that at the at the time uh, the the individual using this armor and uh, and also the individuals they would have have battled you would have found uh, the weapons at the time consisting of bone and stone arrowheads but also bronze knives spears tipped with bronze and bronze axes okay And, uh, and and they contend that this sort of armor would have held up reasonably well against the armors of the time and therefore this would have been like a very precious suit this would have been like this would have been high end again the the stuff a, a true hero would wear
1: and not just for decorative reasons actually like for functional reasons
0: yeah they seem to think that this would have this would have been functional yeah all right well
1: i'm getting some
0: <laughs> yeah i mean the artistic interpretation looks looks rather cool rather stylish you know it's not rattle shirt it's not re- nearly as intimidating in terms of looking like you're just covered in bones but it has trans it has used the bone as a raw material for their technology
1: all right we need to take a quick break but we'll be right back with more
0: And we're back. So earlier, we talked about octopods uh, creating their bone middens and in doing so, uh, remaking the local ecosystem. And uh, I have an example here that uh, that is really interesting that that I ran across concerning humans doing much the same way. In 2016, researchers from the University of Georgia discussed how native peoples in southwest Florida, known as the Calusa, engaged in landscape engineering, quote, essentially, terraforming according to study lead and university of georgia anthropologist victor thompson all right. So, how would this work? Okay. So, what the what we're dealing with Fisher, gatherer, hunter people here. You know, they're depending a lot on on gathering up um, and and uh, and hunting creatures that live in and around the water. So, what they would have done is they would have piled their accumulated shells, all the shells of the creatures that they've scavenged and uh, you know for food already. They would put these in massive heaps to construct water bound towns, Whoa. essentially. Artificial islands. Hundreds of millions of shells uh, would have ultimately been required to produce these islands. Wow! But uh, again, it's it's very much in keeping with sort of what those octopods are doing, and and also ties back to what we were talking about with the mammoths early on. Like you're accumulating these leftovers, these remnants, uh, these the, these hard materials that uh, uh, that are the the results of your lifestyle, and then. You put all that together. That's a lot of material. You can start doing things with it. You can build uh, some sort of a small palace out of them or you can heap them together, uh, you know, add uh, mud and other materials and essentially start remaking the landscape that you live in. Yeah, letting these
1: inedible animal products not just become trash, but become building materials, become tools, become a way of shaping your world.
0: Now, in terms of other bone structures in human culture, uh, you'll find various examples of this as well. Various crypts and ossuaries come to mind, you know, bone houses that at times have, say, walls or structures that are decorated with bones, if not made of bones. And Stuff to Blow Your Mind actually has an older episode about ossuaries that I would refer listeners to. Uh, This is one I did with Julie Douglas uh, several years ago. But one of the more amusing and less gloomy examples of uh, this sort of thing that I came across is the the fossil bone cabin in Medicine Bow, Wyoming, uh, which you absolutely should look up a picture of. There's an Atlas Obscura uh, article about it as well. And it is this... uh, At first, it just looks like a rock uh, little house, you know, nothing too gloomy, nothing too weird. uh, But it's just standing out in the middle of nowhere with this kind of like wasteland uh, landscape around it. And it has a sign out front, at least when this picture was taken, that says, believe it or not. (laughs) And uh, this cabin is uh, is itself only about eighty years old, but it's built using rock that contains fossilized dinosaur bone fragments. Wow! Uh, so essentially, it is a dinosaur bone house out in the middle of Wyoming. <clears throat>
1: I want to be. I'm going to be the Indiana Jones of this house. This belongs in a
0: museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Joe, we don't have any uh, any live shows coming up, uh, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. If we could book this location do for it a, for, yeah for a, for a live show i would do it we maybe we only have like one wyoming listener out there uh, <laughs> that could possibly come but it would still be worth it to record in the believe it or not f- fossil dinosaur cabin
1: wyoming mind blowers out there chime in let us know you exist tell us <laughs> contact at stuff to blow if enough of you let us know we'll, we'll try to see if we can do a show from the roof
0: All right, we're we're beginning to to reach the end here, but Joe, I understand you have one more uh, gnarly bone palace uh, denizen to discuss with us here. Well, yeah, I was thinking about other species that practice something like the prehistoric
1: bone lords, the Russian plane, and I came across evidence of a marvelous wasp species that I think uh, would have had a real affinity for the mammoth bone houses. This animal lives in southeast China and it's known as uh, Deuterogynia Osarium. You can probably hear in the, the second part of its species name, Osarium, that it's named after the ossuaries, right? The the uh the, the human bone houses where, where bones are stored or sometimes used in construction. Um, and this is also known, this animal is known as now the bone house wasp. Now, the use of the word bone there might be a little misleading because while this wasp absolutely does practice corpse architecture, its bricks are not the bones of mammals, but the crumpled exoskeletons of ants. And I got to give credit to Gwyn Pearson writing for Wired for one of the best article leads I have ever read. So she's writing an article about this uh, animal, and she starts with a quote from Conan the Barbarian. You know that scene where the general asks Conan, what is best in life? And Conan says, of course, to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of the women. And they all laugh, you know. ha ha, That is good. But Pearson goes on to say, a newly described wasp species would disagree. What is best in life is to feed your children living spiders and build a wall around your nursery in which you've entombed the bodies of giant ants i i think that's a pretty good point of comparison because it's like um the same way that the you know the the general riding out over the steppe you know must project strength in order to in his mind protect his own clan this uh this female wasp that uh that builds this nest out of dead insects is also doing it in a way
0: from a place of love yeah, yeah, this is a wonderful organism. If if memory serves, I did a monster blog post about them uh back when we had blogs. Uh, I, I did one comparing this Good species. Old days. <laughs> yeah. I did one comparing this species to the um the, the creeper from the Jeeper Creepers movie. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, which is another entity that like builds stuff out of dead things. Oh really, I guess kind of a common trope or or at least not an uncommon trope in the world of fictional monsters, but here we have the real deal, the the, the natural world example. This
1: was the only example that I could really find of this being done with insects. And maybe there's another one, but but I didn't come across it. Uh so this species and its unique nest building strategy was described in the 2014 paper in PLOS1 by Michael Staub, uh, Michael Ohl, Chaodong Zhu, and Alexandra Maria Klein. Uh, and the paper was called A Unique Nest Protection Strategy in a New Species of Spider Wasp. So the species was found and described uh, during a biodiversity survey in the forests of Jiangxi province. And uh, so the bonehouse wasp is a pompa which is a family of spider hunting wasps. This also includes the famous tarantula hawk and there are a bunch of different species of pompilids. but most are pretty similar in their basic survival and reproduction strategy. A lot of times the adults on their own would seem to be fairly peaceful. A lot of them are, you know, sort of vegetarian nectar feeders, but when it's mm-hmm. time to reproduce and provide for the next generation, that's when the true horror comes in. So they tend to be solitary uh, rather than living in colonies like so many other bees and wasps. And the standard predatory reproductive strategy is that a female wasp, a female pompolid, will find a spider... ...and then sting the spider, and the sting will paralyze it. And it will drag the still alive but paralyzed spider back to a nearby nest... ...and then lay an egg, usually a single egg, on the spider's body, often like sort of on the abdomen... And then it will seal the spider up in this cask of Amontillado style live burial. And then the egg hatches and the larva begins to eat the spider slowly inside out as it grows, often saving the most vital internal organs for last.
0: (laughs) Man, I love wasps. Um... Yeah. Uh, you know, I actually wrote uh, how wasps work for how stuff works years and years ago. And I remember that was one of the, the features, one of the, the many features about wasps in general that I love is that yeah, that adult solitary wasps mostly feed on nectar, but then they spend most of their time foraging uh, food for their carnivorous uh, younglings. Yeah. Well, I mean it makes me think like the human analogy would be like an adult
1: an adult who is vegan, but they also are like hunting animals for their for their babies to like eat while they're still alive, yeah, baby needs meat, baby needs <laughs> living meat <laughs> in the nursery, but the hunt entirely powered by blueberry smoothies, yes um. <laughs> Uh, so what makes this bonehouse wasp different from the other pomplids is the strategy that it uses to protect the nest where its larva gets sealed in with its food source. And uh, and so the, the basic idea here is that the nest will have a vestibular cell or sort of like an outer cell area where the adult wasp will pack in the dead bodies of ants and uh, so the nests of the species the researchers found were less vulnerable to attacks than the nests of other similar wasps and this would would seem to suggest that the dead ants play a role in repelling predators or parasites from the nest likely through chemical cues smells right so there's something about these ants that you know, even when they're dead, they give off this smell like, oh, that's something I don't want to mess with, and the predators will go away. Because I mean, uh, you know, an ant colony can be a formidable adversary.
0: You know, this also reminds me of uh, another uh, group of uh, famous cinematic um, corpse defilers: uh, the the Chainsaw Family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure. Because uh, what do they do with the various bones uh, and uh, and fragments that they have left over? They hang from the trees, right, surrounding the compound. Uh, you know, almost to, to warn people away. Uh, it, you know, except for, of course, the meddling teenagers that uh, are central to the plot. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes me think back to the
1: uh, to to the Bone Lords, the uh, the prehistoric peoples of the Russian Plain. Mm-hmm obviously again there is no direct evidence whatsoever that the bones that they built these rings out of were in any way to repel predators but now i'm just trying to imagine for a second could could it play any kind of role like that could there be some significance we're not imagining where this is maybe it gives off a stink like a carnivore's den or something i I don't know pure guesswork i mean i guess any kind of any kind of benefit you'd get like that you'd probably also get get concurrent downsides of uh stinking like meat and attracting carnivores in the process yeah
0: but but you can easily see with the this wasp example how like this is the sort of thing that that would likely emerge out of just uh, the 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 keeping of a midden you know like Mm -hmm. the the leftovers of these meals are around and or in the nest and then in some cases they can they can come to have a, a you know a key uh you know benefit they can offer a key benefit to the nest itself
1: okay so if you were going to play this strategy and try to plant something around your house to keep people out that that worked on a on the basis of smell what would it be what would repel everything and attract nothing
0: <laughs> oh i mean there are plenty of grisly examples but um but you know an actual real life example and this is com- completely ridiculous but there have been times where i've been working um on my laptop, on my front porch, mm-hmm. and once the mosquitoes are active, I'll kill a mosquito, and there'll be this weird idea that I should leave the, the corpse of the mosquito out where the others can see it yeah. as a warning, you know, that they shouldn't <laughs> mess with me because I will kill them. They're not going to be fast enough. Um, <laughs> but, but of course, that's just ludicrous uh, uh, on my part, but there's like some sort of weird instinct to do that, to make an example out of the, the creature that is, that is hunting me.
1: Uh, yeah I would say it probably works to the opposite effect you 've created a martyr, and now they must avenge their
0: fallen <laughs> sister yeah there 's that yeah there is that but yeah. in terms of like actually yeah i don 't know hanging skulls outside my my home um, i mean around Halloween, we all do that, but that that actually has the opposite effect that it draws will people just attract in Attracts people in yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, I got to tell you, going back to that first episode about the, uh, about the bone circles, I mean, some of the hypotheses offered do seem interesting, but I've still got this mystery banging around in my head. I'm not going to forget about this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those that really forces you to, to think long and hard about uh, you know, who our ancestors were and you know, what was important to them in this, uh, this, this, this time of great trial. All right. So there you have it. A second dose of the Bone Palace. More examples of bone technology, uh, bone collection, and uh, the remaking of our world with uh, the remnants of those that came before. In the meantime, if you want to check out other Grizzly episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you will find them wherever you find our podcast. And you can find us just about anywhere. If you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that will shoot you over to the iHeart Listing for our show and you can of course subscribe and listen there uh, as well
1: huge thanks as always to our amazing audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future to let us know you listen and you listen from wyoming or just to say hi you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.